Agriculture has historically played a central role in global empires, from wheat in North Africa during the Roman era to sugar in the Caribbean during the era of French and British domination. But in the case of American imperialism, the little beforehand known banana plant became crucial in the rise of American money and power in Central America and coining of the phrase banana republic. Well, I'm not a crook. I've burned everything I've got. Military-industrial complex. A new world order. But we are here to destroy the control over the industry of other people. I did not trade arms for hostage. It's been Hola, welcome to the show. I am Nick and I'm joined today by Adam and Hans. How are you guys doing? Uh, I'm doing pretty well. I'm doing pretty well this week, all things considered. I as well. I uh, just wanted to thank a couple people who donated on the blockchain. If I'm wrong about the addresses, I apologize. It's just what information's in front of me. So if you guys want a book, just email us at myth20c at com. But these are the first four characters for each respective address that donated. Um, we much appreciate it. So the first one is 181G, and the second one is 1EKV. Thank you again. All right, Nick. Well, we spent the last two shows talking about plague radiation nuclear disaster uh so i figured we would talk about something actually important today how much do you guys know about bananas i know they have vitamin k that's about it i have almost one every day they have a great amount of magnesium uh honestly banana with like really high fat greek yogurt in the morning it's pretty good pretty good way to start the morning you eat bananas, Adam? Uh, if they're in front of me, I've never... Well, that's, that's, that's probably not true, but I, I don't recall ever buying them in the store. Uh, I'll, I'll have them at sort of like the uh, continental breakfast level of my life where <laughs> it's sort of there, and I'm like, well, instead of pouring a bunch of uh, sugar or something, I'll put some fruit, I guess, on my cereal. That's about it, though. I really don't use them. So I actually stumbled upon an interesting piece of banana news. And this was from the Associated Press, uh, in the date being uh, August 24, 2019, which I guess I suppose it slipped past me, but I just, I just found this. And the headline here is that authorities are investigating how cocaine worth more than $1 million ended up in banana shipments delivered to three stores in Washington state. Now, that's an interesting piece of banana news. So uh, why don't you put that piece of banana news just in the, in, the back of your, in the back of your mind, and let's discuss bananas for a moment here. Because I think anyone who's going to have any real grasp of the subject needs to understand some things about bananas. First of all, the banana is a plant, right? It's an herb. Uh, it is actually, in a certain way of looking at, the world's tallest grass. You know, the average 
banana plant grows from somewhere between two and a half to nine meters. And the thing about bananas for human consumption is that they can't be left on the plant because on the plant they grow sour. So they have to be picked at a certain time. Uh, they won't grow ripe on the plant, unlike uh, other fruits. And now after you pick them, you have about 12 to 13 days from picking to really get it, get it on the shelf. The ideal conditions for the banana are, of course, hot and damp. So the banana is grown almost exclusively in the tropics, with uh, the interesting exceptions of uh, Israel and Iceland. Iceland? What? Yes. Iceland they... grows bananas. Not in any serious quantity, but bananas can right? No, well, next to the mineral geysers. Okay, so that, that brings me back to a, a correction I just wanted to make. Um, so I said vitamin K. That's a common misconception, and I, I, I'm actually trying to clear that up for myself, if not the listeners especially. Uh, vitamin K is not the same thing as potassium, which is actually what bananas have, but they are the same on the periodic table, hence the confusion. So I just looked that up because I wasn't 100%. But bananas, potassium, that's a mineral. And I guess maybe that's one of the things Iceland has. They're, they are able to be grown in Iceland. And the, uh, the way the banana production works, banana has some strange qualities because banana is essentially a clone plant, right? It doesn't have any seeds. So the way that you grow bananas is you take the previous banana and you, you know, cut it and huh. uh, replant it, right? I thought the, um, if you cut it like a slice, slice the banana, you can see those little dark specks. I thought those were the seeds. You're saying that's not? No. Hmm. Well, there there are different bananas, but this is the general truth. No, bananas aren't grown from seeds. They're grown from replanting the stalks. Huh. And which means that the bananas are subject to very little genetic variation, right? Which leads to some more problems that we will get into. Now, the harvest time on the banana is about 10 months after after you do that, after you plant the stalk. The uh, hands will appear. The hands are what you may think of as the bunch, right? That's what's called the hands. Uh, well, and then the individual bananas are called the fingers. Now, on a hand of bananas, you have somewhere between 8 to 20 fingers of bananas. Now, the hands, uh, per stem, you're going to have about 5 to 10. And then after that, you can cut, uh, after they appear is when you can, you can cut and harvest. And so the banana, uh, in its natural environment, the banana is, is what the genus it belongs to is known as Musa. Okay. Uh, the Musa acuminata was the sort of one of the original wild types of bananas. Now, the wild type of banana, where it, what grows in the jungle, uh, doesn't bode well for production and commercial sale. Uh, it needs to be grown in a more open, uh, flat environment in order to produce the banana that the consumers will, will eat. So the jungle bananas are, are almost inedible. Now, there are different kinds of bananas among the Musa genus, different kind of Musa, I should say. Uh, there's one also known as Musa paradisiaca, which is the, it's a longer Afro-Caribbean banana. It's uh, not as sweet as what you find in uh, a lot of like Jamaican kind of dishes and shit like that. Uh, the red macaboo, some people may be familiar with the red macaboo. This was, it is still grown. It is less popular. The ladyfinger banana. Uh, there's also something known as the apple banana. 
which I was, was unable to find much information on the apple banana. How about plantains? About, Are those related? They're mooses, yes. Okay. Uh, the There's also uh, a mythical, but I imagine this does in fact exist, uh, something known as the quadrilateral banana, which is a square banana. Are those Japanese? <laughs> they actually do that with uh, some fruits. They they put the fruit in a in a box so that it grows into a weird shape, like watermelons, for example. I don't know if they do that in bananas, though. Well, I don't know because I don't know anything about the quadrilateral banana. Suffice to say that it is said to exist. Now, in the current year, you have basically four firms that produce bananas. You have Chiquita, uh, Del Monte. Uh, Dole and Noboa. Uh, the first of those three, the first three of those are American. Right. Uh, American yeah, firms. I'm familiar with all those except for the last one. So where, where are they based? Noboa is out of Ecuador. Okay. Yeah, makes sense. Now, with respect to what I mentioned earlier regarding the bananas clone being a clone fruit, uh, this presents certain problems for dealing with the great enemy of the banana, which is disease. Uh, you had uh, one. So it's also another, another factor to consider in that is that the banana has a year round growing season because it's the tropics. The tropics don't really have seasons as we think of them in, in normal places that have seasons. Uh, so you can grow bananas year round. So because they're produced year round and uh, the plantation, the great plantations where they were produced, they were the only crop. And they were using one particular banana, which uh, we will we will discuss shortly. Uh, I will mention now, though, that because of this, the way the, the the nature, the genetic nature of the fruit, and its method of production on scale uh, creates a perfect storm for very specific pathogens. Now, the most notable pathogen would be the Panama disease which is also uh, more specifically known as uh, Fusarium oxysporum FSP cubense. And that is a, was known as a Fusarial wilt. So what it does is it, it's, a, it's a microbe and it, it attaches uh, to the, underneath the root and it basically chokes off the water supply of the plant. The other um, most common enemy of the banana is uh, known as Sigatoka, uh, and it's uh, because of where where it came from in Fiji, and that's a spore that is wind wind and rain borne. And what happens with that is it attaches to the leaves of the banana plant, which causes them to ripen early, uh, ruining the fruit. So uh, keep those in the back of your mind as well. So in the beginning there was a firm that made a very large impact on the 20th century, and that is the United Fruit. Now, the origins of United Fruit are uh, mostly banal. The One of the key actors in United Fruit and the early vice president of United Fruit was a man named Minor Keith. And Minor Keith worked with his uncle, on, uh, who was a railroad railroad entrepreneur in Costa Rica. And after his uncle's death, uh, he was experimenting basically with trying to see if this, this fruit could be used as a, as a cheap source of substance for the railroad workers. 
to be just grown along the railroad path. But bananas. Bananas. Um, can I ask a quick question? So mm. <clears throat> when we were talking about what the topic was going to be this week, I, I think it was pineapple imperialism was the, the phrase that you used, and I've heard that before. But uh, why aren't we talking about pineapples and instead of I decided about that instead of talking about pineapples, we would talk about bananas. And instead, we will talk about pineapples at a different fruit uh, fruit focused episode. <laughs> oh my god! Okay, I, I forgot to mention that to you. I actually just realized that. Yes. So, pineapple, well, pineapple imperialism <laughs> would involve Hawaii, really the takeover I mean, of Hawaii. Are we going to have sausage yeah. at least? I mean, I, I can't no, we're not doing sausage. Uh, we're doing today. We're fruit. talking about bananas. Uh, okay. All right. You guys ever see that Monty Python where uh, he was John Cleese's? teaching people self-defense and he's like teaching them the self-defense method against a banana <laughs> and people are like why do you keep teaching people why do we keep having to learn about self-defense against a banana what if we're what if you're attacked with something else what why a banana he's like we will discuss other fruit later and then he's like in the he hands him a banana and he's like attack me with this banana and so he, he attacks him with the banana and john, john cleese pulls out a handgun and, and shoots him right what if it's a what if it's a banana peel though? I think those are more dangerous. Uh, the banana peel. Uh, we 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 haven't really gotten something. into the peel yet. Uh, I was saving. I'm going to talk about the peel a little right, bit later. Don't let me interrupt. <laughs> All right. Well, it brings up an interesting question, which is the origin of the banana. Uh, we don't entirely know. It's probably from the Malaysian rainforests, and that's you know in the fucking twenty thousand BC or whatever, and. Somehow it ended up in West Africa, and from West Africa it, uh, to the Canaries, and then spread through the Americas by the Spanish. Uh, yeah, like the the background of United Fruit is that basically um, there are these two or three uh, sort of banana importers in Boston, and from what I recollect in the ninth, like towards the end of the nineteenth century, basically at the turn of the twentieth century. Um, there was a growing demand for bananas, but it was basically impossible to grow them anywhere inside the continental United States. Yeah, Florida uh, was tried, but the problem it, with Florida is it has an occasional frost, and that's, right. just, that's just murder to the banana. Right. So it, it became impossible, even though people really liked them. So um, uh, basically, uh, they had to start building out entire supply chains in central america throughout the caribbean and a part of south america so they built railroads plantations they navigated shipping lines they created smaller companies to basically facilitate this trade back and forth and it you know became like a uh, a huge business empire unto itself just to import and effectively grow uh bananas outside yes, of the yes. united states and that that comes back to what we have just been discussing with bananas, which is that the banana has only about uh, 12 to 13 days. So when the banana is picked in these distant Latin American countries, you have to get that banana to, you know, the ports of New Orleans or to Boston uh, within 12 to 13 days. So the logistics involved in that, as well as the fact that you're operating in these countries that had no real infrastructure, uh, we will well, come to see that United Fruit was, you know, much like, the, I guess, the British in India, responsible for building up a lot of the critical infrastructure in these Latin American countries. Everything from telegraph lines to ports to roads to railroads. 
The, the shipping and, shipping time across the Gulf of Mexico, I assume, is how they would do it. Was probably no more than a few days. I mean, I'm trying to compare it to the Atlantic, and I'm just sort of remembering this vaguely. That's but correct, it's, but it's they a, have to be get. It's like they ten have to be or on the ships ten or too days. as well. There's, yeah. it's not all. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the on once it's on the ocean, that's uh, the easier part. Of, in many ways, the easier part of the journey. Right. Uh, so I was talking about a certain minor Keith and Hans is correct that what the origins of the United fruit were in the form of a merger with him and some Boston about the big, the bigger Boston firm that was also involved in bananas. It must be remembered that most people had not seen bananas. Uh, bananas were a very, very new thing in the late 19th century. Uh, they were uh, seen occasionally by, you know, I mean, old sailors, for example, will have, we're familiar with the banana and they would sometimes be trying to sell them. Uh, some, you know, it's one of those kind of court novelties of various monarchs in the past had been presented. Yeah. Like there's a, banana. there's a really great podcast, um, from Harvard business review. It actually came out sometime uh, later last year, but it's about the history of United fruit and some bananas and so on. And, uh, the guy being interviewed makes a point that, if you go back to like 1850 America, literally no one would have ever heard of a banana or have ever seen a banana. Like they would have had no concept of what that fruit was. So, you know, basically um, 150 years ago, this staple of the American breakfast diet or just diet in general, the staple of desserts and all kinds of things now um, was totally unknown to the entire population of the United States. Yes. And it was in many ways, it was United fruit that created the banana because again, these, these were grown. I mean, they were found did the specific, uh, variety of banana that United fruit chose was known as the gross Michel. And it was, uh, known colloquially as big Mike. And Big Mike was chosen because it has a, you know, first of all, it's large banana. So you get, in terms of efficiency of, of production, costs, et cetera, and selling it, uh, it bodes well for that. But it also has a very thick skin. So it makes it better for transportation. So the Big Mike uh, edged out a lot of the other bananas. Now, today, you will not find a Big Mike banana. In fact, the bananas that people were eating in the early 20th century uh, no longer exist. But that that skips ahead in our story. I will say that Big Mike lived on until the 1950s, until its demise. So, Minor Keith's firm, he had a it was like Tropical Trading and Transport Company, is what it was called, uh, was was merged uh, with the the Boston firm, and a Scotsman named Andrew Preston became the president of United Fruit with. Keith becoming the vice president. Now, there were three things that had to be addressed above all that uh, presented obstacles in general to the, the operations of the, of the banana. And that was the the considerations already mentioned regarding shipping and the infrastructure in these Latin American countries, uh, as well as the issue of dealing with the what you could call the governments of these countries. And then you also had to deal with the domestic market and the domestic 
political concerns as well, because a lot of United Fruits Rise is coming about in the era of uh, antitrust being a threat or, you know, being occasionally wielded by the state against firms that fall out of favor. So United Fruit is born, and this is in 1899. And the early territories controlled by United Fruit were Costa Rica, of course, which is where uh, Keith got started, as well as Panama, which at the time I was uh, part of Colombia still. And Colombia, Cuba, Jamaica, and the Dominican Republic. Now, later on, the production uh, in the Caribbean shifted to sugarcane, and the banana production was, was moved west. So when when you say territories, what does that mean exactly? Like they have uh, they have a seat at the table in the government where they have plantations. Okay, just property and yeah. Okay, yeah. There was um, there was this guy. So in Guatemala, they um, they encounter this sort of post Spanish dictator named uh, Manuel Estrada, and he's a just a complete fucking loon. He um, he's some kind of cultist, from what I remember reading. Oh yeah, he worships the Minerva cult. Yes, yeah. He he uh, he is a, literally like a pagan cultist, and there's some kind of at the time there's some kind of pagan cult running Guatemala and maybe other parts of Central America. And yeah, so he's he, he's he's part of this group. Um, so in well, he, Guatemala it, was key banana yeah. territory. And at yeah. the time, it was not under the domain of United Fruit. Right. But it's one of the first places where they actually have territory, like, you know, pretty early on, though. Like, Adam's asking, where did they have territory? They had well, territory, Gu- effectively, in Guatemala and in other places. Well, the, prior to Guatemala, they did have the places I mentioned. But in the case of Guatemala, what had to happen was... So, Minor Keith offers to build the railway for Guatemala... Uh, in exchange for bananas, you know all these other all the other railroad firms across the world in Europe and in the United States uh, would demand money, which Guatemala would be unable to produce. So Keith comes in and offers to build it for bananas. So was he really trying to just make a railroad business, and then this is what he was essentially like left with uh, to then get rid of to make his money back? Well, this is the unique part of what I what I have dubbed. Uh, railroad fruit power. That'd be a good term paper title. So, railroad fruit power is that exact niche. He is able to uh, find value out of places where the only other export. Well, I won't talk about the other export right now. But there, there was nothing that these countries had yeah, to cocaine. give. Cocaine. <laughs> You could expand it to logistics fruit power. I mean, United ends up creating, uh, at one point, the largest shipping uh, fleet in the entire planet. Yes, which was known as the Great White Fleet. Right. And yeah. in order to build this fleet, they actually got four Navy ships uh, that were being built uh, for the Spanish-American War, but they weren't finished in time. So they got these like discounted Navy ships. And there, there was a um, sorry for the slight tangent, but it's relevant. When I was growing up, I used to like uh, Ducktales. You guys ever watch that? Scrooge McDuck and everything. Yes. And there was a, a very key episode where Scrooge finds himself on some desert island, 
and he doesn't know what to do. He doesn't know how to get out of there. And I think the natives are going to like, you know, cook him or something in a big pot. But he makes a deal with the chief and he's like, you guys have a lot of bananas. And with my shipping fleet, I think we can make something out of this. And I think that the writers must have been inspired by this because yeah. it was just like, uh, it was very interesting, like transaction concept they were, they were introducing to this kid show. Yeah, no, well, no other railroad firm would have ever accepted bananas, specifically well, banana land. And as for the Great White Fleet, I should say a few more things about that. That's, it's, it was white and it had, there were these refrigerated ships. And at one point, they started to take on uh, tourists for crews. And they had a line that was every banana a guest, every passenger a pest. And I suspect, uh, I didn't really look too far into this, but I suspect this is where the term second banana comes from. Yeah, that makes sense. That's funny. And I, I think it, so at this point you have them building up these countries, building ports, uh, railroads, railroad stations, telegraph lines, and they become they're quick on their way to becoming an empire. At this point, there is a Jew that needs to be discussed. So there's this Russian Jew banana peddler in New Orleans named Samuel Zamuri, and he befriends Minor, Minor Keith, and sells to him 60% of his little banana peddling business. Well, hold on, hold on now. First of all, Samuel's real name was Shmuel Jimuri. Correct. Uh, and he, where was he from, Nick? Uh, he was from Baltic Sea. Right. He's, he's, a, he's, a, he's from Russia. He is not Russian. Correct. He is a from Russia immigrant. Uh, in the uh, uh, kind of, I don't know, uh, like 1890s America or something like that, he shows up. Yes, yes. And he, he shows, shows up, up in, uh, in, in the south of all places, which is kind of curious. He shows up in Alabama. Yeah, um, Mobile. A, yeah, very odd location to immigrate to in general at the time, and certainly for someone of his uh, background. Yes, and he is a very interesting character. He eventually obtains a, a little steamboat of his own and has his own operation. Now... When he sells out to United Fruit, he sells out a controlling share. He sells out 60% of his little banana peddling business. And we will return to him. So, meanwhile, you have also some involvement in Central American politics already starting, coming from United Fruit. In the 1903, you had a, the insurrection in Panama. And this is why... So I guess when I said earlier that Panama was part of uh, Colombia still. Well, United Fruit was founded in 1899, and then so Panama, uh, 1903, has its insurrection, which uh, United Fruit sends weapons on their boats, etc. The uh, U.S. government, of course, supported it as well. The United States government was interested in making a canal, which uh, United Fruit didn't give a shit about, by the way, because there wasn't really much business for them on the American West Coast at the time wasn't something that they had considered and they didn't, they didn't really need this. In fact, they run into trouble with Roosevelt over their lack of support because Roosevelt wants to export Jamaican workers 
to work the building, the construction of the canal. But United Fruit wants to use those, those Jamaicans elsewhere. And so... Well, how are they in the position to control the flow of Jamaicans of all places? I mean... Because they control the flow of all migrant labor in uh, Central America and the Caribbean. How, I mean, so I, I, I take your word on that. They buy out, they buy out uh, the British firm that was relevant here, which is Fife's, okay. I believe it's called. And so that that was Jamaica and the Canary Islands. And so today's equivalent of that is like a temp staffing agency or something. Like they have these just gobs of labor that companies well, can contract with. Yes. And this is a recurring thing because you also have the racial hierarchies in Latin America. And this is a recurring theme in the history of United Fruit because there was... Okay, so if there's any serious strike or revolt by workers somewhere, well, you bring in another batch. They even brought in Chinese uh, that were just being used in California. So you would bring in uh, Jamaicans if the local Indians and the local Indians were actually largely useless on the banana plantations uh, because they were in the flats and the Indians didn't speak Spanish. And so Jamaicans were a popular choice. Uh, they, Jamaicans were brought in, but then you move these people around, and you have when you have problems. It, I mean, they control. It's it's a nation and it's an empire and a nation into itself, where you just move them further south or you move them further north, depending on what's needed, who's needed, where, etc. You just have the, you have this like whole reservoir of, of coolie labor, effectively, the feudal labor. And around this time is also when you have uh, Cuba coming into the. Uh, sugarcane business as opposed to bananas. Bananas were basically replaced in Cuba by sugarcane. Now, after having added Guatemala, uh, they were looking at Honduras. And Honduras is probably the most important of these countries. Uh, one advantage to Honduras also was that it was free of the plague, of the Panama disease I mentioned earlier. And there was a really interesting episode that happened um, where, so this banana Jew I mentioned, Samuel Zamuri, uh, he is not officially working for Standard Fruit uh, at this time exactly. They have sort of this silent partnership where he has his own, I mean, they control his firm, but he has he's doing his own thing. And he's also trying to expand his his. Uh, banana business into Honduras, into the interior. Now, at this point in history, the finances of Honduras were controlled by J.P. Morgan. This is part of the dollar diplomacy. So the, the clearinghouses of the country, the tax collection, everything was done through Morgan, which is a part of U.S. policy of reputable firmness to be appointed. And of course, it was more reputable than J.P. Morgan, right? So J.P. Morgan refuses the banana Jew tax concessions. So this is how the banana Jew solves this problem. He buys a yacht, uh, hires mercenaries, and brings from the other from the expanse of the United Fruit Empire, you know, men and guns. Puts them on this yacht, uh, shows up in Honduras, and overthrows the government. And they then install reinstalled the twice president of Honduras, Manuel Bonilla, okay, who had been hanging out in New Orleans. And New Orleans, in many ways, was... This point in the century, and increasingly so as it goes on, New Orleans is basically the capital of Honduras. 
And one of those mercenaries, interestingly enough, one of them, the, the two white mercenaries I had was a man named Lee Christmas and a man named Guy Maloney, machine gun guy. Guy was an affiliate of the syndicate in New Orleans. And Honduras is going to be important for something uh, far more lucrative than bananas. So keep that in the back of your mind as we proceed. So the banana Jew overthrows the government of Honduras, or, or and in doing so, I guess overthrows J.P. Morgan in Latin America. And the, at this time, also you have the United Fruit maintaining it basically its own security state. I mean, they had they had the intelligence service, you know, spies on all these plantations reporting back to the company, uh, their own you know police force, etc. There were uh, other names for. United Fruit, actually. Uh, it was known as La Frutera, uh, La Compania, and El Popo. The last of which, El Popo, was, means octopus. So it was the power uh, at the time in, in Latin America. It was ubiquitous. Everyone had some tie to the company. All right. Now, a few things of note uh, before the emergence of you know pro political problems. Uh, you did have an ancient them discover in 1912 ancient Mayan ruins, which I always thought was kind of interesting uh, as an aside. But you know you had Latin American politics basically proceeding as usual in 1928. Uh, the Colombian military machine guns like a thousand uh, banana banana reds, I guess you'd say. You know more accurately like people, workers, uh, on the company. This is in Santa Marta. And this was, I guess, somewhat uh, of an issue at the time. And in the 1920s, you also had United Fruit getting involved in the proliferation of Coca-Cola. And they would be bottling this in Guatemala and distributing it across the company lines, you know, to the workers and the company towns, the company, uh, company stores, etc., at this point, uh, you asked that earlier, Adam, about the railroad. Is it a fruit company or is it a railroad company? Yeah. Well, they were formally separate parts of the business. The railroad aspect was not a part of United Fruit at the time. Mm -hmm. Now, they undergo a merger between Keith's you know, railroad uh, firm and United Fruit. Which, in order to deal with this merger and the various, you know, antitrust potential antitrust challenges from the federal government, they bring in uh, the Dulles brothers. And uh, gee, interesting. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, it's not the first time that the Dulles brothers will show up in, in the story of the banana, but uh, Zamuri, the banana Jew, is uh, bought out. Uh, by uh, United Fruit as his business had grown at this point. So he's bought out by United Fruit and he's bought out in shares and United Fruit is reformed. So it's th this, the new United Fruit and they, they have this merger with the railroad and they brought, bought out the Jew 
And at this time, they control, uh, plantation-wise, they control around 3 million acres. Now, only a few years later, with these shares, the Jew comes back and he takes over the whole thing. You know, and they, this was the most of the other board people, they're old Boston wasps, right? Uh, but they're, you know, things business is not doing great. And he, I mean, he Jews his way to the top and he takes over the entire thing. Other things are going on as far as, you know, in the banana business generally in the mid-1930s. Mid-1930s were uh, sort of a tough time for bananas. There was ups and downs, but you had uh, the, the plague and the Sigotoka, uh, which I mentioned earlier, that was the wind and rain born spores. Uh, that comes to Honduras, which makes the United Fruit have to consider looking even deeper west. And they develop also to, to deal with this, they develop basically a poison, which is called the it was the Bourdieu mixture. It was an early, uh, I guess, pesticide. It was basically a poison that they were pumping around, trying to kill the things that were killing the bananas. Which, by the way, today, the banana is the most heavily treated crop that I'm aware of. So, on the domestic front, United Fruit sets up their own education department to educate the American people about the banana. Well, yeah, that, that's the big question from a business standpoint. It's like if this is an unfamiliar fruit or product in general, you have to market it somehow. So I guess they, what what did they do? Like the USDA started recommending it. I mean, that's that's oh, basically who, how. Who do you think that they hired? Uh, it's the Dallas Brothers. I don't know. No, they no. hired Edward Bernays. Oh, Edward yeah. Bernays. Well, that was my yeah. Yeah, marketing. I mean, everyone is, in, it's kind of interesting, you know, we're talking about uh, the crime National Crime Syndicate, Dallas Brothers, uh, Bernays, all these figures we all have kind of explained over the years on our show, worked together and knew each other. I mean, Dulles, Dulles Brothers definitely knew people inside the National Crime Syndicate. And vice versa, they had known them for a long time. They had worked with them before, um, and it does. It is worth mentioning, by the way, that uh, United Fruit did loan several of their ships to the Dulles Brothers and the Crime Syndicate in their effort to fund uh, the Bay of Pigs. Yes, Those two out of the United... seven ships at, at at Bay of Pigs were yes. were United mm. Fruit ships. Yes, and. <clears throat> In addition to Bernays, so, so the the thing is, you had at the time, uh, they felt that you know Central America was just it had a bad ring to it. You know what Middle America likes? Middle America. So they they went about renaming Central America Middle America, <laughs> <laughs> and so they set this thing up called the Middle America Information Bureau. Oh and this God. is, you know, for the investors, et cetera. Did, are there, are there like um, funny black and white videos like from, uh, you know, the, that style when, when they... Oh, well, there were actually two films that the United Fruit Company made. The first of these films was Journey into Banana Land. Makes sense. Um, <laughs> and the second film, uh, after the defeat of, or at, rather after the... the uh, the breakup between the United States and uh, their great ally of the, of the USSR. Mm. Uh, they made a film later called Why the Kremlin Hates Bananas. Why what? <laughs> Why the Kremlin Hates Bananas. Oh, the Kremlin. 
yeah. Well, we'll that, get to it. Has, we'll get to that, it. That's a reference to the um, the Albens or uh, the man who was deposed by the Dulles yes. brothers on behalf of correct uh, United Fruit. Yes, mm. yes that's exactly. That's was, exactly he correct. was accused of being a communist. Right. Um, yes. This is our our Benz, and this was the yeah. the propaganda that was being run during the Guatemalan coup, which is also known as Operation Success, by the way, uh, was basically United Fruit uh, run for the most part. I mean, Bernays was running it, and Bernays was the chief consultant to United Fruit's advertising campaign. Okay, so Bernays makes sense. He's famous for propaganda and everything. But why why are they using? the cia basically it, it's like they need access to the government a friendly government like what, yeah, what's the, I mean, the, well it's so who's using okay, you're, you're jumping ahead here adam because the thing did, is did the cia contact them so they can get well, in what, there this is what we're dealing with so the the interesting thing is this partnership between the syndicate the company and the other company right the company, or the company in question here, not the CIA, the other one, I mean, the, the lines get blurry because United Fruit had the infrastructure. They had more power than the U.S. State Department in Central America. They had way more resources. They had guns. They had men. They had ability to transit people between one country. You know, you need to take some mercenaries over this country and, you know, execute a few people and then you disappear them to this other country. Uh, they had all the infrastructure in place. And in addition to that, it, you had yeah. lurking in the background, you had the syndicate because uh, the one of the primary places of uh, docking for these uh, banana boats was, of course, New Orleans. And no boat could be unloaded in New Orleans without the permission of the syndicate. And a banana, by the way, is very susceptible to this form of extortion because a banana boat cannot sit in the harbor for right. long before it rots. And so you had, you know, this was perfect cover for, uh, this is also the time, I mean, the banana roots, This I'm jumping ahead, but the banana roots became cocaine roots, okay? Especially out of Honduras. Uh these were the same, you know, this was the same, and the, so the same people had the same interests in many ways. You had the uh, foreign interests of the United States government, certain cliques within the United States government, most importantly the, the CIA, as well as the drug interests, which overlap with the U.S. government, but you have the drug interests of the syndicate, and you have the banana men who are <clears throat> providing the boats and transportation and um, you know everything that you would need for drug trafficking and for overthrowing foreign governments. So who so, are the senior and junior partners in this? This is the old American question, you know, between private firms, gangsters, and, and the uh, the clandestine intelligence services. Nick, I have a I have a quote here from, um, have you ever read Cocaine Politics by yes, uh, Peter of course. Scott? Yes. Um, so I'll just read this. Uh, the history of the New Orleans Mafia that sheds light on the longstanding importance of drugs to the Honduran economy. One historian of organized crime records that by 1890, no banana freighter could be unloaded until a fixed tribute was paid by the importer to the firm of Antonio and Carlo Montranaga. Yes, and Montranagas were the successors of uh, Joe Macheca. Yes, and after them, Palermo. Yeah, yeah, They're, uh, they were definitely representatives for the New York branch and the, the yeah. National Martranga at his funeral, uh, United Fruit people showed up. Yeah, and I think that they um, they actually like helped 
Luciano, when he was kind of in exile, formed some kind of uh, kind of temporary con down in Mexico. And anyways, they they were involved with all the big players back in the the golden era of the the crime syndicate. Um, they were big bootleggers down in New Orleans uh, during Prohibition. So these guys have been kind of connected to the that power scene for a while. Um, and after them, you had the boss of New Orleans was Carlos Marcello. And he was running the cocaine and the, the heroin that was coming out of Honduras. So here, here's a little bit more. Uh, no Negro or Italian longshoreman would move unless he has orders from one of the appointed bosses. Fruit shippers were particularly vulnerable to extortion since their expensive cargo would, would rot after a few days' delay on the docks. Large banana merchants had an incentive to form alliances with waterfront gangsters to protect their investment and muscle out business competition. The reputed yeah. boss of organized crime in New Orleans in the 1870s, Joe Macheca, was one of the first Americans to exploit Central America's banana trade. In 1900, his successful shipping line merged with the United Fruit Company, one of whose founders later employed Italian criminals from New Orleans to build a railroad empire in Central America. Macheca's successor as head of the New Orleans underworld, Charles Montraga, uh, remained closed to United Fruit, whose executives paid their respects at his funeral. Uh, United Fruit's major competitor, Standard Fruit, was founded by four New Orleans-based Sicilian immigrant brothers named Vaccaro. The firm had similar ties to criminal circles in that city and beyond. Perhaps the most telling evidence was the presence on its board of Seymour Vice. Yeah, that was Huey Long's uh, bag man. Right. And he was yeah. connected to um, uh, to um, this is Costello and Lansky, yeah, 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 yeah. Him, yeah, and yeah. Zim, him and Zamuri were connected, uh, and they both kind of worked for FDR at some point. They mm-hmm. crafted policy for the for FDR. Yeah, that's exactly FDR. correct. Yeah, uh, I we did jump ahead there, but this this was a point that I wanted to make with respect to New Orleans and Honduras. So Honduras was a place of great interest for both drug traffickers and banana men. And those interests uh, were simpicat... Uh, what do you say? Simpatico. There you go. Yeah. Uh, anyways, I should add, too, that as when he was... After they hired Bernays, they also had... And I mentioned the Middle American Information Bureau. They brought in a man named uh, William Gaudet. And he was to basically run this publication. And he was a, he was a company man, the other company. Right. Who, interestingly enough, uh, traveled with uh, none other than Lee Harvey Oswald to Mexico. So let's talk about Senorita Chiquita Banana. Go ahead. She was a dancing banana cartoon. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, that was like, uh, that was. Wait, she didn't exist? No, 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 no. That was really racy at the time. That kind of like uh, Latin style commercial. It was. It would have been. I mean, now it's sort of overblown and it's a huge part of media in the United States. But at the time, it was pretty kind of uh, risque and unique to have that sort of dancing Latin kind of weirdness. Yeah, she okay. was uh, she was very popular. You know, they were they were spending a lot of money blasting her everywhere. And uh, one station apparently played uh, played her little jingle like seven hundred times in one day. Oh my god! 
so I guess we'll talk. I mean, we're not. This is not an episode. This is an episode about bananas, not the specifics of the coup in Guatemala. But it, as people are familiar with the coup, I mean, this was under the Eisenhower administration. So you had uh, John Foster Dulles at State Department and Alan Dulles still at the CIA. And Howard Hunt was uh, brought on as the point man for this with Edward Bernays running the, the domestic and foreign propaganda. But the foreign propaganda was kind of comical because not many people in Guatemala had radios. <laughs> but they did. I mean, they dropped leaflets from airplanes, et cetera. Do they even eat bananas in middle America? Uh, the, the well, they certainly America? don't find them funny. Yeah. <laughs> I find this uh, whole topic to be quite interesting. Um, the thing is, though, after the funny. after the United States uh, government form, you know, intervenes in Guatemala and Arbenz is deposed, the lands that Arbenz had taken from United Fruit are not returned to them. And then, you know, nearby Costa Rica smells blood in the water too, yeah. and they crack down and take sixty percent of United Fruit's profits at Costa Rica. So United Fruit was basically on the ropes by the early 60s. Early, by the 50s. 50s were a bad, bad time so, for the banana. Th- this so, was when the, all the countries were nationalizing. I mean, all the sort of uh, third world countries in Africa and Asia, they were nationalizing. Yeah, this is the beginning Saudi Arabia. of the Cold War. So mm-hmm. anything that's you know in a, in a threat to uh, the firm's commercial interest in the United States can then be easily branded right. as a, a Soviet intervention in the mm-hmm. region. Um, now the fifties, this is when things get really bad though, because, uh, their bananas are starting to become over fertilized and, uh, because of this, you know, bad weather, hurricanes, et cetera, can really just knock them over cause they grow too tall. And just as a, just overall bananas are, you know, something like five times as expensive to grow than they were in the thirties. And this is also well, when what's interesting is that uh, a lot of the environmental damage done to these countries is sort of uh, irrevocable at this point. There were entire um, tributary systems that were basically filled in with sand permanently. Um, there were whole parts of forests that were cut down and basically raised uh, or burned. Um, there were, you know, some of the actual top- topographical structures of the uh, kind of lowland plains near the ocean were permanently changed. Um, there was a huge amount of agricultural engineering going on that completely altered the uh, biodiversity and uh, existing plant life of these areas and has actually resulted in the banana plant being far more populous than it really ever could be naturally in the wild. Um, oh, be, in the wild, f- it grew only in the jungle. It didn't yeah. grow in the flats. Yeah, to be uh, fair, this is the story of just about any cash crop in the world. I mean, you're right, going to cultivate it, it, it. So True, true. But banana plants don't also do not grow in sort of uh, clusters near each other. Like You can find that naturally with wheat and some plants that are more traditionally harvested. Banana plants being clustered together creates a lot of weird environmental damage. Um, and it leads to a lot of insect problems because a lot of insects that end up eating uh, trees and end up destroying more of the environment uh, congregate under the banana plants. And um, anyways, 
it's definitely a plant you can tell was never truly intended to be able uh, to be grown in mass quantities because it leads to a lot of serious environmental issues that uh, you know uh, permanently destroy local wildlife. And this is when Big Mike uh, meets its end, <clears throat> and it had to be replaced. the The disease got to it, and they just they abandoned it in the nineteen fifties. So it was replaced by the Cavendish, which is what you have today. So you've never eaten the the bananas in this in the heyday, the golden age of cocaine and bananas. Uh, none of you listeners have ever actually eaten the banana that was pop is popular at this time because it's basically extinct. So what what they do? They just uh, they cut it all down, burned it. Oh, they replaced it with the Cavendish. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's a gra- it was a it was a gradual process, but it was the fifty sods end. And uh, more, you know, I guess a few notes on Cuba and uh, it basically catches us up on the history of the banana in the 20th century. As I mentioned earlier, they for they got rid of the banana production in Cuba. So United Fruits interests in Cuba were sugarcane, which interestingly enough is exactly what uh, Fidel and Raul Castro's father did. He grew sugarcane on United Fruit land. And they were both raised, put their, you know, school on United Fruit money. Yeah, Fidel was a lawyer, right? Hmm. They, they were, uh, his education funded by United Fruit. Yeah. And so when he came to uh, power and they started cracking down on United Fruit, I mean, they came to lose, you know, something probably like $60 million in Cuba. So they were one of the many aggrieved parties. The three biggest aggrieved parties were, of course, the CIA, the syndicate in the form of the Lansky Casino operations and brothels in Cuba, and United Fruit. So, as Hans mentioned earlier, uh, Chicum is no surprise that they provided support in the form of two of their ships, as well as in um, hosting the operation outside of uh, one of their client states. Yeah, I mean, again, I, I don't want to quote too much from uh, Cocaine Politics by, um, by Scott, but um, it's a book that I think all of you guys should read because it touches on this subject, and it really, it, there's a lot of detail. It's a very dense book. It has a lot of little details about who did what and who got hired when. Um, it kind of helps construct this narrative a little bit better, but Really, uh, what you're left with by the end is the impression that uh, the industrialization efforts by United, the United Fruit Company, um, whether or not they were, it was intended to perform this function is sort of irrelevant. What it ended up doing was uh, paving the way for uh, the creation of the you know, large-scale drug trafficking networks that we see now that became very, very powerful in the 70s and 80s. Um, in terms of not only the agricultural education that was required in order to start mass production of cocaine, uh, but also the uh, logistics networks, the communication networks, the technical skills, uh, capital investment, capital accumulation, um, all the, you know, and the po- Don't forget the political capital as right, well. Population growth. All these things that eventually led to the availability of these economies to produce large amounts of cocaine and then export it successfully 
would not have been possible without the United Fruit Corporation. Um, if you read cocaine politics, the the kind of assumption is made that this was very intentional because the United Fruit Corporation was very early on co-opted and utilized as a vehicle for the expansion of mafia power into Central America, um, and and by extension, uh, the CIA's power into Central America. Uh, now, there were a lot of different reasons why these factions were working together. The CIA, uh, again, we kind of we touched on this just earlier, was really more concerned with what you would think they'd be concerned with on paper, which was they looked at this guy who was um, kind of at least talking to the Soviet Union and was doing things that they found uh, unpalatable. Ironically, he basically, allegedly, he he looked at the program the United States came up with in post-World War II Japan for defeudalization, is what they were calling it. Uh, and that was what he modeled his program for land reform, Decree 900 or 990, something like that, um, that's sort of the, the implicit irony there. But, you know, the, the CIA was more concerned with this guy as just being a Soviet puppet. Uh, well, the, the CIA was concerned first and foremost with justifying its own little, you know, its own little private empire and that's also justifying true. its existence. And the perfect line is, of course, uh, communism, which gives them which gives them the ability to operate with impunity. The mafia is concerned with with drugs and uh, the fruit people are actually concerned with fruit. Yeah, I mean the there's um there's another little I'll read one more little passage here. Um, the pattern of banana republic politics and corruption went virtually unchallenged until the mid nineteen seventies, when the power of both the drug networks and the fruit companies was shaken by a series of scandals. Um, and then Scott kind of goes into these various scandals that again plagued both equally which is interesting because a lot of the same people got wrapped up in that. yes uh, uh, let's we can go through some of this in the 1970s was a bad time for both the intelligence services as well as united fruit i mean it was really the end of the united fruit because in 1972 you had a very large earthquake in nicaragua and basically destroyed managua in the 1973 you had the Sigatoka returns, but this in a much worse variation known as Black Sigatoka. Uh, you have that Jew war in the Middle East also in 1973. And you also that, have the church hearings later in the 70s. Yes, like, yes you yeah, have the church hearings. You know, in the 70s, it looked like the CIA might get broken up. Like there That's was, right. uh, I think people don't understand that um, because it's hard to grasp uh, now because the CIA has become sort of uh, glorified and is a big part of pop culture. In the United States, but in the 1970s, there was a real shot at actually destroying the CIA. They were um, the ire of everyone in the country, and they were being publicly uh, embarrassed by members of Congress day in, day out. And they were being dragged in front of these testimonies. Um, it it was a really curious time, and I don't think we'll ever see anything like it again. Yeah, that's when they had to reveal what they referred to as some of the family jewels. Yes. Um, yeah. But the what was taking place with the CIA was happening on one side, but on the other side, you have just 
the forces of, of nature conspiring against uh, the banana. I mean, the uh, there's a hurricane Fifi and it basically wrecks Honduras. And by this point, standard fruit, the uh, the only real competitor, and they weren't a serious competitor for a while. Uh, they were honestly probably just more of a, of a drug trafficking front. <laughs> but then they started actually competing with uh, with United Fruit on the banana side of things, and they overtook Standard Fruit in sales, or in, uh, they were sorry, Standard Fruit overtook United Fruit in sales. Standard Fruit, by the way, eventually lived on to uh, be absorbed into Dole. Ah, uh, see, Dole, and, Dole is the pineapple imperialist. Uh, yes, network. but again, this is an episode about bananas. Right. <laughs> All right. But any, if Other, anyone's uh, curious, the real distinction is that, uh, you know, the, the tropical empire of United Fruit uh, was really a banana thing, whereas uh, pineapple imperialism was really a, a Dole company thing. That's right. We will discuss other fruits in later episodes, but uh, this has been a discussion of the banana, and I would just like to end this discussion of the banana on the fate of uh, the banana Jew that came after Zamuri. Uh, a Jew named Eli Black, who's basically a corporate raider, takes over the firm, and they rename it something stupid like uh, United Brands or something like that. Uh, he's trying to save this thing and these events that I just described taking place in the 70s the earthquakes, the plagues uh, the Jew wars affecting OPEC, uh, the hurricane uh, these basically just, just ruins the whole show and in 1975 uh, this Jew jumps out of the 44th floor of the Pan America building now I may have mentioned this on the program before but Wait, the one in I'm, San Francisco? No, no New, York, New York. Park Avenue. Oh, okay. Park Avenue, Oh, Pan, yeah. pan like the, the airline. Okay, I'm thinking of the Transamerica. That's that's right. Okay. Now, uh, I will just say that my general position on this question is that uh, Jews don't kill themselves. Now, the reason Jews don't kill themselves is the Jew is uniquely immune to feelings of uh, shame. <laughs> Now, maybe I'm not less, it, maybe less prone. I, to I, that's what I'm saying. It's a general rule. Okay, it's a heuristic. Jews don't kill themselves. It's not to say no Jew has ever killed themselves. It's you know, it's, it's a, that would be false. But as a general rule, they don't jump out of 44th floor windows, especially when that involves actually having to break the glass in order to do it. Uh, <laughs> so. Is, it, is this the famous case? There, there was another guy in New York who allegedly jumped out of the window, and it was very suspicious. I don't know if this is the same one, but no, I don't think that I don't know how much suspicion there is amongst people familiar with this. But that was United Fruit. This, this great, this, the great banana empire, really came to its end with a Jew jumping out of a forty-fourth or defenestrating from a forty-fourth floor office building well the reason why he did it uh it's a little interesting because he he had learned ahead of time that um there were going to be some stories about him coming out in the press and then likely lead to investigations uh he had attempted to bribe the president of honduras um 
with like a one point twenty five million dollars uh, to basically remove the Honduran government and the Honduran banana production from some kind of banana cartel, some kind of criminal network that was exporting bananas, and then reshift his focus back to United Fruit. Yes, they had the, the Central American. By this time, the Central American company, countries had formed their own banana, explicit formal banana cartel. Ah, uh, yeah. Um, and so, anyways, it comes out that this is that he tried to do this. Um, and couple that with all the failures that Nick was talking about. And the company was basically dead in the water, and he knew it, uh, and so was he. That you know he would either be I'm just if you walk through the logic here, he would either spend the rest of his life in jail or he'd be whacked before he could talk, because the United Fruit Corporation even at, at, to the very end was involved in a lot of shady enterprise down in Central America and was involved with very uh, duplicitous people, um, and given the time frame this is taking place in when the CIA is nearly on the chopping block in the you know, United States post-Watergate world where um, you know, corporate and government actions are taken very seriously and are reported on vigorously, uh, you, can, you can understand his rationale maybe for, uh, for deciding to end it all early. So. Well, another, uh, <laughs> another United Fruit man had uh, come into his, some trouble also with Watergate being Howard Hunt. Ah, uh, yeah, yeah. It's interesting. So uh, what's funny is that Nixon himself actually went down to uh, Guatemala in the 50s when he was Eisenhower's VP. And he appeared in a uh, United Fruit Corporation or company uh, propaganda film. And he spoke on behalf of United Fruit and Bananas. And in like the little movie, I don't, and I assume that this would have been shown before an actual film or something like that. It goes on for like 15 minutes. Um, it shows, it's like Nixon is a small, is like a third of it. And then the last third is like a, a wife prepping a banana dish, like banana. Yes. Yes. Like that. I was about to say, do you know what they had for dinner? Yeah, it was like banana split or something, something like bananas. that. Bananas. I rest my case. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's very 1950s. It's very kitsch. Uh, you know, it, it it it's just odd how all these figures that we've talked about on the show before, uh, National Crime Syndicate, Bernays, Dulles Brothers, Nixon, you know, they all kind of coalesce around this one company and its activities. Uh, and around this one fruit. Yeah, this one fruit. Which, as we now know, well, what's in, what's interesting is that the banana is now the most consumed fruit in both the United States, the UK, I think several other countries. Uh, the what? So per yeah. American, yes, yeah. It, yeah. the banana is the fourth largest crop, crop food crop in the world after wheat, rice, and milk. This is so weird. Okay. And the average, if you took. The amount of banana consumption per American, so for an individual American, uh, the individual American per year would consume somewhere between 70 and 90 bananas. What the hell? Wow. Which I makes mean, I it, have a lot more than that, but... 
Well, I don't really eat bananas, so you're kind of making up for it. But I want our listeners to remember this. that (laughs) When you're at the the supermarket and you see the banana. Oh, and the banana became, I mean, the banana, even in the 1960s, it became this counterculture thing. I mean, that's why you have, of course, the the Velvet Underground album, the Andy Warhol design. Uh, It was was this, like, symbol of, uh, I mean, because back then it was, I mean, it was one of the original, you know, hated companies of evil you know corporate america or whatever by the left but you know the american left especially you know the the hillary clinton voting american left the bourgeois american left you know they eat bananas well it's almost like uh it, it, there's nothing like it i mean I, I guess the pineapple is also strange which is we're not it, talking about the fucking pineapple calm down i'm, I'm not finished so <laughs> no incidentally though they're both Dramatic. they're both very odd looking fruits and i think you said the origin of the banana is unknown and i feel like i'm in some sort of twilight zone episode everybody around me is eating these alien uh foodstuffs and they're acting very strange uh, well, maybe it explains know, honestly something. there's there's some evidence and if you uh in that harvard business review uh episode or podcast they basically assert that bananas really uh were never consumed by anyone in vast quantities. It was sort of an accident that people actually found them and actually just decided to eat them. And the bananas that were originally discovered bared very little resemblance to the bananas that were made popular by United Fruit and certainly the bananas we have now. They were kind of uh, sticky and gross and they, they had like a weird color. They were sweet. But they had seeds in them. They were very different kind of fruit than they are now. Um, and they also had a very different uh, shape and texture. Uh, the, the Big Mike I, was, in fact, larger than the Cavendish. Right, right. Like the the original bananas, I think you asked, does anyone, like, was anyone actually eating them in their native habitat, I guess you could ask. Uh, and the answer appears to be no. They were not very widely consumed they were were things that like the jungle indians would eat but they would probably throw them in a fire right things like this they they weren't they weren't eaten as uh breakfast fruits and that's all the more ironic because it's like literally the low-hanging fruit that is the most edible you can think of i mean maybe it wasn't ready like well i mean yeah it ripens on the vine right so you literally have to do no horticulture whatsoever no planning no irrigation you literally reach up and your your dinner's ready and the fact that they don't eat it and the fact that those mayan ruins are there and there's no more mayan civilization i'm telling you guys there's an x-files episode about this that wasn't written (laughs) well well, there are many mysteries you know i mean it is possible you could imagine for example a great empire once made use of the banana to expand its influence you know throughout the we know as says Latin America today, but there, you know, w- what was the relationship between the lost civilizations of the Mayas and the banana? Many ask. Yeah, it's also worth noting that there's a whole mystery period in in Central American Mesoamerican history that we don't really know, and that is uh, what came before the Mayans and certainly what came after them, uh, because they had collapsed pretty thoroughly by the time the Spaniards show, had shown up. And whoever was living in the kind of last remnants of the Mayan civilization, um, the Spaniards asked them, you know, uh, who made this? And the common refrain was that we don't know. We just kind of live here. 
uh, we sort of moved in. We don't know who made this, and we, we've just sort of uh, been squatting here. Well, as that I mentioned, they discovered ruins that were under, that were totally unknown. It was the banana men who found them. Right, in right. I mean, there's, there's, there's a, there's a great deal of evidence that there has very, there's been very scant civilization in that area for very long, and what little civilization they did produce collapsed pretty thoroughly, and everyone forgot about it. And we can imagine, you know, other strange fruits from civilizations, you know, further into the vast darkness of time what 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 strange fruits do the atlanteans have <laughs> you know what other what other great empires have been built on on fruits that are now totally lost to time we don't know but i i do have something i, I wanted to say which is um knock knock who's there orange orange who aren't you glad i didn't say banana Captain Jarrow sailed his old steam packet through the narrows, hauling unknown cargo bought with baubles and disease. When someone fell and broke their neck at the after end of the quarter deck, a lantern dimmed, a bunch of silver keys gleamed at his feet. You had to put a number on it Had to pin a face upon it Look no further or just look away In the popular illustrations of the day Months after the event Oceans away Oceans away Oceans away Down in the engine room It said they marched to a different tune Cold black sweat and rumours of foul play This caused no small sensation Back in the mother nation Reports were filed and locked away Popular illustrations of the day Months after the event Oceans away Oceans away Oceans away A life is framed by a poor decision Friends and family unforgiving This was Captain Jado's final trip while certain facts can't be denied Swept over the deck from the leeward side Stiffers aboard, washed up at St. Kitts A stiff drink, stiff, stiff upper up lip The search called off at Georgetown Dock We drowned our sorrows and dried our socks In the high heat of midday some say the crew and captain drowned The empty ship, it ran aground Months after the event, oceans away A faded photograph inside His daughter's diary when she died From a jazz club in Montevideo 
seven men raise their glasses Minus beards and moustaches They look familiar, but who's to say? Oh, if you had to put a number on it Had to pin a face upon it Look no further or just look away In the popular illustrations of the day Years after the event, oceans away Oceans away, hey. oceans away.